Today, I want to talk about uh, the Genesis reading we heard, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, it's one of the probably most difficult passages in the whole Bible, definitely one of the most controversial. Um, and maybe you have your own feelings and thoughts about it. And so hopefully what I share, um, maybe something new that you haven't heard, but more importantly, I hope that in a way it helps you see this, this story of God's word and brings you closer to God, maybe in a new way. That's the hope, right? Um, but we'll have to do some work. Some uh, set the scene. So we've been, the past few Sundays we've been seeing uh, these kind of like uh, vignettes, these moments in the, in, the, in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abraham is a really important figure in the Bible. Often he's called the patriarch. In our world, we recognize him as the father of uh, three great traditions. Right? There's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all look to Abraham as their father. And so Abraham's a big deal. Um, in our Bible study that we started not too long ago, we started at the very beginning of the Bible. We're going through Genesis. And recently we learned, if you know the Genesis story, how God made the world good, but through human choices, humans broke the world, and now that's the, the reason why we experience suffering and disease, war, death. And when that occurred, God didn't condemn us to the mess we made, but God came to us immediately to deploy a rescue mission, to rescue humanity from the destruction that we had and have brought. And part of that rescue plan was to come to humanity, and God comes to a family. Abraham and Sarah. And he says to them, through your family, through your children, I'm going to bless the world. Bless the world. And you're going to have a giant family. More, you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. This is my promise to you. And so they received that promise in the hope of its fulfillment that one day they would have this family. But that day seems to never arrive. And Abraham and Sarah come to old age. Sarah's in her 90s, way past childbearing age. And it seems like God has forgotten them. So last week we saw how Abraham and Sarah uh, did something that would have been very normal at that time, but to our eyes, very vicious. Uh, Sarah took her slave girl named Hagar, gave her to Abraham and said, She's going to have your child, and that child will be our child. In a sense, jump-starting the promise of God. Hagar had no choice, she's a slave. And she did have a child, because the name is Ishmael. And that's a very low point in the story of his family. And then yet we learn that God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, see, you have Ishmael, but my promise was that Sarah would have a child, and she will. And in the story, she does have a son, his name is Isaac. God promises fulfilled. And then we reach this point today. Isaac's now a young man, and God comes to Abraham and says, you see your firstborn? I want you to offer him to me as a sacrificial offering. I'm remembering, uh, well, it's been years ago now when I was in my second year in seminary, 
And we had a whole uh, seminar dedicated to these uh, challenging stories in the Bible. Excuse me. <coughs> and um, I was in the same class. I was serving at a, a church called Free Church. Um, and the lead pastor was in this class as well. He was picking up some extra courses. So we actually ended up being in the same class together. Uh, he was the pastor at the time. And when we entered the story, there was all this lively discussion. And after class, we were leaving, and I said to him, I won't say his name, I guess, but I said to the pastor, hey, what did you think of his class? And he said to me, I just don't, I just don't believe in the story. My God would never ask um, a father to sacrifice their son. That's not my God. And that stayed with me. And I had two immediate feelings, one after the other. One was great sympathy. Now, at that point, I wasn't a father. I was a single man in seminary. He was a dad. He's a dad, two daughters. And I could see the anguish in his face because he's thinking of his own children. And if you have children, you tend to think about that. He's like, yeah, I just don't buy that. And the other part of me said, thought, This is God's word. Part of the Christian journey is that we receive God's word and we have to reckon with it. And we can interrogate, we can explore, we can, be, we can challenge it. But we're not in a place where we pass judgment on it. Right? So I guess the first thing I want to highlight here is maybe some of us feel like that in this room. Oh, that's not my God. But if we say that about the God of Abraham, then we're saying that about Jesus. Because Jesus comes from the family of Abraham. The same God that came to Abraham, the same God revealed to us in Jesus. And if we want to hold the promises Jesus gives us, then we can't cut out this Abraham story. It's challenging, it's difficult. But we have to reckon with it. Now here's the message today. I gotta be brief. We can go really long. Uh, this passage is difficult. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna suggest it's not as, it's not as difficult. It's not difficult in the way that we think. It's difficult in a different way, right? And that's what I want us to explore first. And for this, we need context. Um, this idea, you may know this term. It's a primogeniture. If you're familiar with this term, primogeniture, it's the idea that the firstborn gets the lion's share, if not the whole of the family wealth, right? And so we're looking at this ancient culture that Abraham and Sarah belong to and the surrounding cultures, and even today exists in this world. In my culture, Guatemala, it still exists, not formally, but it's pretty explicit still. The eldest, usually the eldest male, gets the privilege, gets, you know, they, they get treated as a special by their parents, they, they carry the family name, family line, right? That's common. Now, in our Western culture, it might not be that way usually. It's not something that is normal to us in our culture, but in many other cultures in the world, and especially at that time, primogeniture was a very normal thing because usually the wealth of a family was tied to land, right? Money today is kind of where wealth resides, and even then it's more a digital thing now, but back then there was money. People didn't look to their money or things or their wealth. It was land. And of course, if you had the land, you could support livestock. It all came from the land. But 
The reason, so when they had many children, that was very common to trust many children to them, very normal families to have many kids. They had to make pragmatic choices. They couldn't give each child an equal share of the land because what would happen is that one generation to the next, the land would be divided and then the family would lose its wealth, its influence, its power. And therefore, if you had a lot of land, you made sure to ensure the family, the eldest son received the lion's share, if not all of the wealth. And then his siblings, brothers or sisters, became benefactors of this oldest sibling. And that way they were taken care of. But the oldest sibling, the oldest boy, had the rights to the whole land, and they secured the family so the wealth could go forward in time. So being an eldest son wasn't just a relational reality, but it had a, a technical aspect. My firstborn son. All right, so that's something we have to keep in mind when we come to the story. There's a, there's a, a, a societal structure that we miss, I think easily, but that's present in the story. And it's important to see it. Because when God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to give me Isaac, your firstborn son, as a sacrificial offering, there's not only a relational challenge, but a technical one happening. We're going to talk a bit more in a second. But I want you to hear this. If God somehow, for some reason, had come to him and said, uh, Abraham, I want you to go into, um, I, want you, I want you to kill Sarah. I really believe Abraham wouldn't do it. I mean, God wouldn't ask that. That's murder. But even if that, it wouldn't do it. Because there'd be no sense to that. That's just wild. But then God says, no, give me your firstborn son. Now, I've heard Abraham here. Okay, something technical is happening here. Uh, an office is being asked. Not just a person, but a, re- an off- a societal thing is being challenged here. So Abraham's now listening. It's more than just an individual. It's more than just asking for a discreet person. A person that carries uh, almost like a political weight is being asked of, right? Okay. That's the first part we have to understand. Here's the second part. God asks for Isaac, the firstborn son, as a sacrificial offering. That's another technical thing that we have to recognize. Right? Because again, if God had asked because uh, if God wanted Isaac dead, God could have said, hey, just go and plant him to stab him. And Abraham would have done, I, don't, I really don't believe he would have done that. Because it would be like very bizarre, like this is murder. This, is, this, is very, this makes no sense. But then God says, no, I want you to give me your firstborn son Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And that's the clue. Because another understanding that the ancients had that we here in the modern West miss and I'm looking, I'm saying us, because other cultures in our time don't miss this, but we miss it, is um, it's this. Have you ever heard the term, have you ever heard this phrase, um, all, all religions basically teach the same thing. We're all basically the same. You know, there's some minor differences, but we all, we all basically teach the same thing. <coughs> Fundamentally, be kind to each other. Have you heard this? Maybe you have. I'm sure you have at some level. The idea is that all religions are kind of like... Uh, Equally true, really. That's the hope. And um, that's not true. Uh, all religions, I would say, better to say it, all religions are superficially similar, but fundamentally different. Right? Because every religion in this world is trying to uh, 
solve a problem. Every religion. It's a problem that we, there's something wrong in this world, there's something wrong in our lives that we're not connecting with or hearing with the divine. And so each religion is a system meant to cure that problem. Now, superficially, almost every religion will tell you, I mean, with some rare exceptions, right? There's lots of religions that say this. But most religions will tell you, be kind to your neighbor, you know, be generous, have compassion. But fundamentally, how they resolve your relationship with the divine is radically different, right? In Islam, it would be to recognize that this, the one God is sovereign king and you must submit, slave, your life to this God, right? Whereas in most Buddhist traditions, it would be actually the recognition coming to an awareness that there is no you, no individual self, but our sufferings are based on kind of an illusion, uh, an illusion, and that illusion creates suffering because we have a desire. And if we only recognize that there is no us, we would experience release from this world. And then, of course, our religions like Judaism and Christianity that would say, well, no, there is a discrete self. It's not an illusion. Suffering is real. And it comes from wrong relationship with our creator. Right? So those are incompatible core beliefs. And so there's no, there's no sense in saying, oh, basically the same. No, they're not. Most, almost all Buddhist traditions have no personal God. And then you have some that have a personal God, or some have many personal gods. Those are incompatible realities. They cannot be blended together. That only happens when you don't know enough about each religion, and it's easy to say, oh, they're all the same. But once you start reading about them, you're like, oh, no, these are fundamentally different. But what they do share is that they are trying to resolve a, a brokenness in the human experience, right? Even a Buddhist tradition that doesn't have a personal God is reckoning with the experience of suffering, the incongruence in our how we experience reality is trying to solve it, right? A committed Muslim is trying to solve the issue of their sin and brokenness in this world, and we're not rightly related to God. So what relates us properly to God? Oh, submission. You know, eliminating our, the primacy of our, of our experience and submitting to God, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's, they're solving an issue, and the ancients all knew that. There was plenty of ancient religions that don't exist today that existed at this time. And it was the recognition of a debt of sin. That humans carried a debt. There was something wrong in this world, and somehow we were complicit in it. And so we had this debt. And so many religions actually had sacrificial systems of some kind, whether you sacrifice food, or you sacrifice livestock. In some of the most brutal traditions, you sacrifice humans to appease the gods and to resolve the sin, the debt sin. Are you following me here? And so Abraham, so they, I'm going to point this out, they were understanding something correctly. They were working it out incorrectly, but the insight that there's a brokenness in the world, there's brokenness in our heart, and we have a debt of sin to the divine, that's correct. That was right. It's just how they worked it out and didn't work out. But Abraham would have been aware of that. I have a debt of sin. We all do, right? And so here comes God, he comes to Abraham, and he says to him, Abraham, offer me your firstborn son, Technical term, now we know. And he's going to be an offering, a sacrificial offering. Abraham would have heard the second part. You know that debt of sin you have? I'm calling it in. 
You, like all human beings, owe me. And now call me your dead man. And Abraham would have known, ah, he's right. I do owe him. Right? And he's coming for the thing that I prize the most, my firstborn son, the security of my life in Isaac. That's when my family goes forward. The, the, the wealth that I have, everything I have is here. And he would have also then thought, the wealth that I tried to secure by throwing Hagar, using her and then casting her out. The wealth I tried to secure in the previous stories by taking my wife when I was afraid that they were going to kill me, giving my wife to local leaders because I was scared. See, Abraham would have been looked at his life and saw the sin, the debt accruing. Everyone saw it back then. Today, we lie to ourselves. Oh, sin is not real. So we're blind. But the ancients and other cultures see it today. No, we accrue. The evil that we do doesn't just disappear into thin air. It lives in our lives. It lives in our culture. And so when God came to Abraham and said, now I'm cashing you back. Abraham pardoned me knowing he's allowed to, he's God. And I have done more and I must pay for it, but it's coming for the, the most expensive thing in my life. The, the treasure I treasure the most, my son Isaac. That's what God's coming for. I'm going to stop right here to suggest we have to hear this. Because we, each one of us, has something in our lives that is the treasure of our hearts. And usually, if you're not a sociopath, the thing that you love is a, it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Children are the easiest, but it could be... Uh, a career or a business that you cultivated from nothing and you treasure it. It could be a material thing, a work of art that you wish so hard in your life to acquire. It could be any, all sorts of things. Your reputation. It could be something that you treasure. Even a good thing. But the problem in our world is that humans chronically, habitually, take good things and make them ultimate things. We take something that's good and we overvalue it. As St. Thomas Aquinas would say, we have disordered desires. We, we value, you know, some people like, will turn a blind eye to children dying in, in South Sudan, but we'll be worried about a puppy that didn't have enough kibble. It's like your desires are, you shouldn't, that's a wrong ordering of value, right? We have it all the time. That's actually probably one of our biggest problems. We value money and property and we'll throw soldiers' lives to fight for it. Infant beings being slaughtered or things. You understand what I'm saying? We see it all over the place. That's a big problem for the human race. And so what God is calling us to is to right relationship with him. In other words, right ordering. A, a, a human being, fully healed, would prize God in all things. God would be the number one thing. And then we would live in the light of God. And then everything else would be filtered within that hierarchy. God's the most important. And therefore, what does God want? And then our lives would be so ordered. But we rarely achieve that. I often think, well, what does Seth want? And how does God fit into my plans? Right? That's disorder. It's a disordered life. And Abraham clearly had that. Because God gave him a promise for a child. And he took a slave girl. He tried to jumpstart it. He treasured the promise more than treasuring his relationship with God. And so now God had to come to him to test him. Because God had promised Abraham 
Abraham, through your family, the whole world will be blessed. And now God has to see, <coughs> can you carry this promise? <coughs> because now it seems like you faltered. You try to jumpstart the promise with Hagar. You had treated Sarah brutally, and then you ended by treating Hagar brutally. So now we have to reckon with your heart because you're overvaluing something. It seems like you're not valuing my relationship with you as I've been coming to you over the years. Instead, now you're valuing your wealth, your family, and this person that I've gifted you. It was a miracle, and I gifted you this. Now you've taken this gift, and you're misusing it. I have to challenge you. Which really the challenge comes to each of us. So first application, what is in your life that you're valuing more than God? Don't wait until God comes to collect. Think of it now. Consider it now. Right? Jesus says, his own words, if, if your eyes are, are causing you to stumble, in other words, if your eyes are what the dividing me, you from me, then pluck them out. If your hands are causing you to stumble, better that you cut them off and enter the kingdom of heaven with no hands than if you had your hands and you walked out. In other words, be very serious, very intentional about the things in your life that are separating you from me. Be severe. And God comes to Abraham, your firstborn son, offer him to me. Now here's the, here's the tension, if it wasn't enough. Abraham holds a promise from God that through Isaac, the whole world will be blessed. Now, Abraham would go, no, God is not a liar. How is it possible that he's asking me to give my son to die on the, on the altar, as an offering, if he's the one who's supposed to go forward? In other words, God's promises are always true. So what does it mean for Isaac to be killed if he's the one who's going to go forward? Is God a liar? No, I don't understand this. There's got to be mercy somewhere, all right? But at the same time, Abraham has to be thinking, so there's mercy. There's a promise here. That, that can't be nothing. But the other part is, God is justice, and I have done evil, just like the whole world has, and we have a debt of sin, and God can come to collect. He is perfect justice. So here there's two sides of God. Coming in one moment, in one question, in one demand. God, you promised me that through Isaac the whole world will be blessed. But you're also right, you can ask for judgment. And you can bring the judgment down because we do sin. What's going on here? It's a big question mark. And up they go, you know, perhaps Isaac, and they go up the mountain. And Abraham stopped. This is a paradox. This is not resolvable. It doesn't make sense. And then in one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all of human literature that's ever existed, Isaac talks to his dad. <coughs> says, Dad, well, we got the wood here. And we can make it. God, where's the, where's the offering? And I came out of his heart with his slim half in the And But notice what he says. The Lord will provide. Abraham's life was one of promise. Like he had been given a promise by God, and he could trust God. But then if you read his whole story, he 
in the most crucial moments, Abraham does not actually trust God. Repeatedly. But God's fashioning his life. God's shaping his life. When he comes to this difficult moment, it's like it's, it's landing for Abraham as, as Isaac speaks to him. The tension, well, God's mercy, the promise, but also God's justice. He can also destroy us from sin. He's wrestling and wrestling. And Isaac asks, Dad, what about this? And it's like it lands. I don't know, son. This is on God. God will figure it out. And the right ordering is beginning. Because now the answer begins with God. Not what I'm going to do. Well, let him be very crafty. Now I'm going to develop a new philosophy where all the religions are the same. He didn't start with himself. When he stopped his ability, he began as he should have. God will provide. I don't know why, son, I don't know what it means for God to promise me that your life is going to be the one that carries the promise, but I have to bring you to this mountaintop to offer you. But I also don't know what it means for me to carry all this evil and sin that I have participated in, and that God's sword can follow me. I don't know the balance. I don't know how to balance that. I don't know what to do. This is a paradox. God will figure it out. Because God is God and I am not. And that is the beginning of an honest spirituality. And so they go up. And they set up an altar. And he dies, Isaac. And in the ancient Jewish traditions, uh, the story is the binding of Isaac. Isaac is not understood to be a little boy. He's understood to be a young man who willfully, willingly allows himself to be bound, not understanding, but knowing that something holy and different is happening. And how much that would have broken Abraham's heart because he's Binding Isaac and just saying, God, I, I don't know the tension here. You're gonna you're gonna provide, you're gonna resolve it. I don't know how you're gonna do it. I don't know how you're gonna do it, but you're gonna resolve this moment. It seems like your mercy and your justice are being pitted together against each other. I'm not sure how that, that math works out, but you'll resolve it. And he ties him up and he puts him down. He grabs a knife. And he's committed. He doesn't know how God's gonna do it, but he's following God all the way through. Right? The hierarchy. God will provide. God's number one. God has said this. This is an official thing. Recognizing my sin. Calls the knife up. And he's about to go. And he's going to do it. Even stop. Now I know that you won't withhold anything from me. I saw what you did to Sarah all those years. Giving her to those men. I saw what you did to Hagar. And it's becoming evident that you weren't actually following me. But now I see that you have the right order in your life. That I'm God and you're not. And you will do. I tested you to see. Because you carry the promise. Don't harm this boy. And then a ram is provided. Right? And they offer the ram as a sacrifice to God. And the place is called God will provide. And we're thankful that it ended that way. Thank God, right? And I'll tell you, on the way down, Abraham must have been thinking, God, the question wasn't answered here. I still don't know how you're working this out. Promise for Isaac, yeah, but what happened to your justice? 
because I have done evil. And this world has done evil. How is this resolved? Right? The tension in all human history. Because when God said to humanity, if you eat of that fruit in the Garden of Eden, if you eat from that fruit, you will die. And the moment we all ate from that fruit, guess what happened? We stayed alive. History didn't end, but it should happen. Is God a liar? God is working out his salvation for the human race. When we broke everything, it was like God at the, the towel, clean up the mess. It takes time. It took time to clean it. And when he came to Abraham and Isaac, he said, you're right. Now you see, for thousands, for thousands of years, people will see the tension here between my mercy and justice. And the story of the mountain doesn't resolve it because this, this mountaintop isn't the last one. Thousands of years later, one of Abraham's descendants, well, he goes up the mountain. And he's also the first one son. And he goes up there willingly, like Isaac, not fighting. The Bible says, like the lamb watched the slaughter, he didn't fight back. And they tied him up on the cross. And when the knife was brought up, no one was there to stop it. The knife of God's justice came falling, crashing down on Jesus Christ. Because God could have said to Abraham, Abraham, your son will not die for your sin. My son will die for your sin. None of you here or myself, I don't die for my sin. That wouldn't fix anything. Just one more body. But my beautiful, perfect son, the only one who's ever would ever exist and would never deserve this, he will come down and he is God. And he will climb the mountain. I won't be with him. He'll be alone. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, Father, Father, why have you seen me? Because he was alone. And God's justice fell on him, resolving the tension. Because Jesus is God. God himself came to us. That moment in the mountain of Abraham and Isaac, it's Jesus who resolves it. For all of us to make God's mercy and justice come together in a way that we could never have imagined. And yet it happened. And from that moment, when Jesus died on that cross, he was the offering to God to resolve the tension of our brokenness and our sin. He gave us life to offer us the mercy we didn't deserve, the life and love we never earned, if only we trust in Him. And only Him. If only Jesus could ever and has ever done that for the human race. It's not about how many rules you can follow. It's not about buying into a concept that somehow you're an illusion. God doesn't say that to us. God says, You're not an illusion. Your sufferings are real. And a lot of them, if not all of them, are real. You're real and you're making a problem in your life. I have come into this world to solve it if you trust in me. Right order, put me first. That's the question, isn't it? For each one of us. Will you put God first? That's the only way 
but an honest spirituality. It's the only way that a human life is meant to be organized. My prayer for you today. See, I don't know your lives in the end. It's not for me. Each human heart, doors among doors. You might share some of it with me. There's so much that I miss. I'm not asking you to give me the grand tour, but I'm, I'm telling you, God already has it. So it's you in the room with God. And he's telling you, am I, am I your treasure? Am I your number one? What is it you're holding in your life that is taking the place that only God should have? Do not wait for God to bring you up the mountain. Jesus already paid that, but he will. If you don't listen, he'll bring us up. It's not meant to punish. It's like the, the gold that you bring to the fire to refine it. And you can choose today. God, whatever is in my life, I'm prioritizing it with you, please. Remove it if you have to. Help me to rearrange it. I want to follow you. I want you to be number one. Or, God, I want to want to be for you to be number one. Or, God, I want to want to want. You know, it's hard. Just be honest. Just talk to me. Pray to me. Say, God, I want to in my life. Lord, I believe. Help me believe. He will be there. And he will heal you. Because God knows. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Gracious and loving God. Lord, we, as we take stock of our lives this morning, and each one of us has a pattern of life, a decision we made, and how we prioritize, how we organize our lives. And Lord, right now we bring our lives to you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit, for your holy wisdom, to help us discern how our lives should be organized. We know that you should be on top. Help us understand what that looks like in our lives. We want to honor you. We want to put you where you belong, in our lives. And even when it hurts, God, to do that. Give us the strength and courage to do so. Help us to love you rightly all the days of our life, that when we die in this world, that we may wake up to see your face and see a friend. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.